Hello, welcome to our Lighthouse podcast. We hope that this message brings inspiration and intent to your day. I love questions. I love figuring out why things are the way they are. What, what, would, what would a question be you would expect me to ask you right now, being here together, Sunday church? It's not what you were doing nine months ago, relax. How are you? Maybe that could be the first. I could take a turn on it and say, what are you? That would be a bit, maybe people would, come on, man, chill out. It's Sunday morning. I could, I could ask, when are you? Or I could twist it even further. I could go, why are you? And get all spooky and postmodern. I love asking questions. You know, Einstein uh, came up with a number of incredible things in the course of his life, a number of great concepts and ideas, many of which I don't understand. He gave us general relativity. He gave us special relativity. He gave us uh, E equals MC squared. And uh, as he got older and got to the end of his life, people were less kind of sort of interested in his incredible physics and, and mathematical knowledge. And they actually started to think, how do you think of the things that you think of? And that's what we we're more interested in, how he, how he did it. And he, he said a number of things. I love what he, when he talks about questions. He said, I have no special talents. I am passionately curious. I was like, what a cool posture to live life in. Just to remain passionately curious. I wonder what that would look like when we approach God with passionate curiosity. When we, when we embrace life and the people around us with a passionate curiosity just full of questions. So today we're going to talk about the three questions that Jesus asks everyone. He asks a lot of questions. Jesus actually responded in the, in the gospels we have written of him, the, the uh, encounters, the eyewitness encounters of his life. He actually responded to people with questions way more often than what he did with answers. And I love that about him. And I want to look at three of those questions today that have really beautiful meaning for our life. Now, the first one happens when he was just a boy. And you'll read it in Luke chapter 2. If you want to join me there, you can read the story while I speak. But basically what happens is that Jesus' family, every year at Passover, which is like Christmas for the Jewish people, he would, uh, they would travel from Nazareth where they lived down to Jerusalem, which would take you about, if you're doing it on uh, foot, maybe like a solid week to hike it out, camping along the way. And so they would travel in like crews together. Their whole family would get together and they'd pack their packs and get the donkey ready and fix up whatever the thing behind the donkey is. I don't have one, so cart, <laughs> cart. And they'd head off and they'd walk to Jerusalem and they would get there and they would join in the festivities. All of Jerusalem was partying because it was a special time of year for them. And then as Passover uh, succeeded and, and finished, the family then packed everything up and then headed back to Nazareth. And uh, I don't know about you, we have, a, we have a van. I love our van because we just like open one of the doors and then like a horde of children go in and then we shut it. Then we get in the front seats and we go, okay, sound off, one, and everyone has to count. And it takes about seven or eight tries just to count to five. That's okay, though. And we get there and we're kind of like, yeah, we've got everyone, they're in the back somewhere, right? 
Yes, they're in the back. Yeah, good. Okay. Mary and Joseph did the same thing. They weren't in a minivan, but they were at the head, like, you know, leading everyone back to Nazareth. And they're like, Jesus is back there somewhere, isn't he? Joseph was like, yeah, yeah, sure, Dal. Of course he is. And the mule and the cart. He's back there. And then so they called back, Jesus back there with you guys? No, not with us. So they called back further in the line. Is Jesus back there with you guys? No, not with us. Mary and Joseph just like look at each other and then do the, ah! <laughs> What's his name? The Home Alone kid? Kevin! <laughs> it was that moment for them. So they quickly turn around, go back to Jerusalem. They're seeking through this old city for Jesus. Now, if, if you've been to Jerusalem or you've seen pictures of Jerusalem, you know this thing is a maze of sandstone laneways, tunnels, cobbled streets. It's not an easy place to find a lost teenager. And yet they figure out after much searching that Jesus is up at the temple, the kind of center of the city. And he's sitting around teachers of the law, wise people. And they are amazed at the questions he is asking. And then Mary, sweet Mary, gets to him and says this, hang on a second, I'm a couple pages ahead. She says, his parents saw him and they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you been treating us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And quite obviously, Mary and Joseph's expectations of what Jesus was supposed to be doing as their teenage son was very different to what Jesus was doing at the time. And so he responds to his Sweet mum, with an answer that only a teenager could come up with. He was probably about 13 at the time. He says, why are you searching for me? Maybe not like that. Why are you searching for me, mum? I'm hanging out with my friends. He says, why are you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? I wonder what it would be like if you came face to face with Jesus after this search for the king of the universe, the, 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 the promised one, the savior, searching for him with your life. And you come face to face with him, expecting of him that at that moment he will turn around and tell you the mysteries of the universe and just let them unravel for you. And yet, he says, why are you searching for me? I like to think of the story like in my own life, like I'm climbing this great mountain, you know, searching for Jesus. It's snowy and windy. I have to set up ropes and all kind of cool stuff. And I get to the top and Jesus is sitting there wearing like a cool hood, you know, like kind of like a Luke Skywalker kind of figure. And he turns, you know, I can't see his face, just his beard hanging out. <laughs> I say, oh, Jesus, I found you. Quick. Tell me everything of the universe. Give me all of the answers. Tell me how to live everything the right way. And he responds, why are you searching for me? I love that when we come face to face with Jesus, he turns it back on us to figure out our intent and our purpose, why we are choosing to live the way that we're choosing to live and causes us to reflect inwardly and go, well, why am I actually looking for you? You know, there's a thousand things shouting us out shouting at us from all across every corner of the globe about how we, would sh we should live, what causes we should be part of, what we should wear, what kind of house we should have, what kind of job we should have, what course should we study. It goes on and on and on. 
There's, there's a million different, like you scroll through Instagram and it's just like, do this, buy this, be a part of this, save the sharks, save the whales, save the sharks while they're eating the whales, save the whales while they're being eaten by sharks. Honestly, the things I look at. There's a thousand voices shouting across our globe about how we should live. Jesus is the only one who asked me why. I'm searching for what I'm searching for. I love that about him. And I love that he asks us that question, that he actually turns it on us. Ah, I'm perplexed, but I'm also drawn in. And I think I understand why he does that as a, as a father. I um, love to play hide and seek. My kids, it's one of the funnest games we do. And uh, I'm a retired outdoor guide. So hide and seek goes next level when we play i'm like this this kind of like where am i that's not cool no no i'm like grabbing a bit of this and poking it in there and taking this lead and wrapping it around my leg breaking up my shape and so i fully disappear and i love being in a place where i can watch my kids seek me and i can see the joy and the excitement in their face as they're looking for me because you know what? They know that I'm going to stick around, that I'm not that far away, that I'm only just around the corner and that I won't leave them alone, that I won't f- forsake them. I, I won't be hidden so far away that I can't protect them. And every now and again, my hiding spaces are so good, they'll never find me. So I have to give a little clue, like a <laughs> or a and they'll be like, oh, you never, oh, dad, there you are. And the, the joy and the elation that just explodes out of them when they find me. I think God's a little bit like that as our dad. That he, there is a, a sense in which he's a little bit aloof. He's so big that we can't possibly understand him. And he seems like he's just out of our reach, but not far away. And he loves it when his kids are looking for him with intent and in purpose. That's why his son, Jesus, asks us a question, why are you searching for me? Do you know that you need to search for me? That when you search for me and find me, that there's great joy in that. That when you live a life of intent in our relationship, that it's good and that it's fulfilling. This isn't a a new thought, by the way. You know, way back when Moses were setting up the nation of Israel that escaped from Egypt. They're not like that. It was a lot harder. <laughs> We're getting out of slavery. Done. No, I jest. It was way harder than that. There was all kinds of things. <laughs> That's another story. But he's setting up the nation of Israel and he's giving them uh, laws to live by. And, and there was many. There, there wasn't just the Ten Commandments scene at the Mount Sinai. There was actually more than that. And in Deuteronomy, you can read the story. And we get to Deuteronomy chapter 4, and Moses is is giving a speech. He's speaking to the nation of Israel, and he says a number of great things. Then he sees the future a little bit for Israel. And he actually suggests, you know what? One day, you're going to make decisions where you'll actually choose to not be seeking God. You'll choose to live in such a way that you actually paying more attention to idols. And, and you're more concerned with telling things made out of wood and stone what they're worth 
to you rather than telling God what he's worth to you. That you will live your life far more concerned with the stuff around you than you will be concerned about the God who's above you. I mean, he, he predicts this. Then he has this incredible, like, kind of like turning point. And he says, but if from there you seek the Lord, you search for the Lord, you'll find him if you seek with all your heart and with all your soul. And you'll know that the, the greatest commandment, as, as reflected by Jesus, actually came from what Moses said. It's like when you love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and strength. And Moses is kind of hinting at that. He's like, God loves to be sought. He loves to be searched for. He loves it when we embrace him intentionally and purposefully. And, and, and it doesn't end there. In fact, that concept became so rich that it made it into the wisdom books of Israel. They put it in Proverbs. In Proverbs 8.17, you can read it. God says, I love it when you love me. And when you search for me, you'll find me. And there's this, there's this relationship that's kind of building, that, that God is, presents himself to us, but he also, at the same time, in this cool paradox, sort of just stays aloof from us and invites us to pursue him across the galaxy. <laughs> That'll be cool. Takes a bit of faith to do that. I just want to remind us that in Acts, when the church was being developed, Paul gives this incredible uh, talk, and he says that everybody, every single human being, like everyone in this room right now, was made originally out of the one person. And God did that so that we could all be connected. And not only that, that we would f- try and figure out how, how did that happen. And as we look into that, we'd seek God, and that perhaps we'd even find Him even though he's never far away from any one of us. I love that he's never far away from any one of us. I can show you how far away he is. You want me to show you? All right. You ready? I can show you. It's not far. It's in my pocket. That far. In between my fingers, I can completely seal it from you as a mustard seed. That's how far away God is from you right now. Jesus said that you only need faith that size in order to have a relationship with God. Jesus said a number of cool things. You read the Gospels, he used the mustard seed to teach about four different principles. Here's my favorite one. Jesus said, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you can say to that mountain, go and throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. Now, of course, he's using a bit of comedy, a bit of hyperbole. You're not going to literally throw mountains into the sea. But you know what mountain he was talking about? When Jesus said that, he was in a place that was, had a beautiful view of the landscape of Jerusalem. And I wonder if Jesus was kind of like holding his hand out, signifying to his, his friends who were listening to him that day, this mountain as in the mountain that Jerusalem sits on, as in the mountain that's the symbolic seat of power and religious hierarchy of the day. And he's, he's symbolically telling his friends, faith this big is, supersedes all of that. All of that hierarchy, 
all of that power, all of that religion slides into the sea. And all you need is a faith this much to be close to me, to be with me today. What a beautiful message to the people he was speaking to that day. The, the poor, the oppressed, the cast down, the weary, the tired. How much better for us to hear that news in, in the privileged positions we have. To hear that faith this far does away with all the religious hierarchy and allows us just to have a pure, simple, humble, intentional relationship with Jesus. I love that. So, of course, faith brings us to our next question, which Jesus would ask anyone who got into the boat with him. If you get into the boat with Jesus, he's going to ask you this question. So beware if he hasn't asked you already. Because when the wind blows and the storm comes up and the boat starts to rock and the waves crash over and it's getting really tippy and it's getting dark and lightning has struck the mast and the mast is broken and you don't know what to do anymore in order to which you could survive. So everything you know is telling you you're about to die. You run to Jesus. That's the pattern, right? And say, we're terrified. Help me out. We're going to die. That's the question Jesus asks. Where is your faith? It's not, it's not a coercion. It's, it's, he's not condemning you. He's inviting you to have faith, just like a mustard seed in a moment. It didn't take much for the disciples to go like this. You know what? I reckon Jesus could save us right now. That's it. And so they go to him. Of course, we know the story. He speaks over the sea. It goes calm. They're all saved. Before that happened, like literally in the 24-hour period before that happened, Jesus miraculously fed 5,000 people. And maybe 48 hours before that, he miraculously healed the centurion's servant who wasn't even standing with him. And you know what he says to the centurion? Wow, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. He, he knows I don't even have to go to the bedside. He, he knows I don't have to touch the person. He just believes I can say it and it's done. I haven't found faith like this in all of Israel. His disciples watched him do that. And yet a few waves come. And so Jesus says, where's your faith, guys? Where's your faith? Your faith will overcome this situation just a little bit. It'll overcome. And then they go on to uh, engage in a number of other miracles too. They heal Jairus' daughter. And, and the woman reaches out and uh, touches Jesus' cloak. And she's healed from a 10-year disease. A little bit of faith brings so much opportunity to our life. I think the problem, and just t time out, time out. Can I do that? Excuse me, hold that thought. People responsible for this book or the gospels that we're reading were the disciples. Jesus like made the stories happen, agree, but he didn't pen them, okay? His disciples did. Here's the amazing thing about that. These guys were the preeminent leaders of the church. And their stories that they wanted everyone to remember Jesus by were the stories where they failed or were unwise or were scared. And Jesus stood in the gap and helped them become bigger people from that. You don't hear people like great leaders telling their story like that very often. Sometimes, yeah, it's good. It's good when we see vulnerability and all that. These guys are masters of it because they'd stood alongside the master of the university, taught them humility. 
taught them how to, how to learn from their mistakes and to move through with faith. So we have these stories. So, so don't for a second think I'm belittling the disciples for a second. These are the guys and girls that Jesus chose to be alongside him. So they're, they're very important. So they give us this story, but what, they t- what the story teaches us is that they live life out of everything that they know. We know when the boat's about to capsize, we know we're probably going to die. Okay? Faith tells them something else. Faith and their belief in who Jesus would, would tell them that he could save them from that situation. So I want to state to you now that you don't have to know everything you believe. That's okay. Be released. Because the margin between what you know and what you believe is your faith. So don't deconstruct that. I, I hear a lot, in, in, particularly in this day and age, de- oh, deconstructing my faith. Deconstructing. Don't do that. Deconstruct what you know. Absolutely. But don't like pull apart the, the relationship between you and, and the belief you have in what Jesus is capable of. Faith is what gives us hope. You want to deconstruct that? Faith is what connects us to who Jesus is and what he's capable of in our life. Don't deconstruct that. In Hebrews, it says that faith is the assurance of what we hope for. And the, and the, uh, sorry, the confidence of what we hope for and the assurance of what we don't see. Faith is in, incredible in allowing us to live a fuller life beyond what we know and allows us to live in a world of things we believe for and hope for. And it's people like that that Jesus asks the third question. Are you ready? He says, who do you say I am? So he's surrounded by a group of people that would all be willing to jump in the boat with Jesus, that would all be willing to answer why they have searched for him. And he's with them. These are guys like John and James and Matthew and a couple of girls, Mary and another Mary. And there's a Martha there too. She was great at putting on a good feast, keeping the house clean. Not that that is what women have to do. Far out. I'm a proud housekeeper. I do the washing in my house. Also mow the lawns. But washing, I do a lot of washing, okay? I don't mind cooking either. Although Lisey's far better at it. So he's surrounded by people that are committed, faith-filled people. And he says to these people, who do you say I am? And Peter the leader of this group of people, the, the, the man that Jesus chose as the leader of the church once he left, he nails it. He gets the answer right. He says, you are the Messiah. You are the chosen one. You are the, the one everyone's been waiting for. You are the one that God has sent to save the universe. He, he makes this bold proclamation and then Jesus anoints him at that point and says, Peter, you chip off the old block. That's what he says. You chip off the old block. I'm going to make you the leader of the church. And on that principle, the church will grow. Peter reminds me of Drax from Guardians of the Galaxy. And I understand who I'm speaking to here. So everyone under the age of 24, you're welcome. Everyone above that, I will now tell you who Drax is. <laughs> Drax is this big, green, hulky, 
uh, monster alien guy and he's super literal. Like he doesn't get metaphor or picture at all. He's super literal. There's, there's, a, there's a time when they're flying along and someone says a joke and Drax like, just sits there like that and they say, Thorny, it went over his head and Drax goes, nothing would go over my head. I'm too fast, I would catch it. That's the kind of guy he is. I imagine Peter to be a little bit like that, all right? You know Peter. He's the guy that when they go down to the Garden of Gethsemane on the night Jesus is arrested, he's the guy who sneaks a sword along. They just had an awesome meal together. There was bread and there was wine. And Peter's like carrying. Peter's, Peter's hiding a piece under the table. And they get down to the garden and Judas points out that's the guy. Centurions grab his arms, Jesus' arms, and Peter like, sword, what? Yeah! Now, people who do that, yeah, like they're not going for a little nick off the ear, which is what happened. He, he damaged the soldier's ear, we read. The French kind of, this? That's not the kind of sword fighting Peter was into. Peter, it was probably blunt. And he hacks, yeah. Now, he was not aiming for a nick off the ear. He just wasn't very good at aiming. When you do that, yeah, my Celtic Viking heritage tells me you're going for the kill. You're going for the head. You want to... Wouldn't that have been something? If, in, if instead of the ear, the poor guy's head came off. And, and Jesus is like, whoa, whoa, dude. Peanut sword? What? Picks up, you know, the story goes, he picks up the ear and heals the, the centurion. There. We're not here to harm people. We're not here to put people's heads off, man. <laughs> that would have been cool. We, we're not here to chop people's ears off. That's, that's not what our kind of faith tells us to do. That's not what I've been teaching you along the way this whole time. We, we don't need to get violent. We're the kind of people that through humility absorb the pain around us to become bigger people than the world around us. Why? Because Jesus has overcome the world around us. And when we believe and have faith in him, he puts us in a position where we can come, become bigger than the world around us through faith. And so instead of having to attack the world around us and chop people's ears off, we can humbly stand there, absorb the pain, and, and put people in a position where they want an answer for the grace with which we live. And that's what Jesus was demonstrating in the garden that day. He, he took all the pain of the world and put it on the cross through himself. And when we believe in that, we start to work ourselves toward a life that can do the same thing. So I think that the better question would be, instead of being an ear-chopping, mouth-shooting, gospel fire talker, the better question might be, what does your life say about Jesus? When people look at the way you live, the way that you greet others, the, the thoughts and the prayers you have about the other people in your life, the, the actions and decisions you make and, and the, the things you choose to do with your time, what story does that tell about who Jesus is to you? 
It's far more compelling to watch your story unfold than it is to hear what you say. <laughs> I recognize that, that part of my job is to say stuff. And yet, way more compelling than that is, is the kind of man that you'll see me to be. The way that I relate to my wife, my kids, and, and, and you guys as our beautiful church family. This will fade. This will be a good inspiring moment for you. But actually, over the course of time, it'll be the kind of life we live with one another that will make the difference. And so the better question is, what does your life say about Jesus? If we were to write it out, put it into chapters, would it be like the disciples once? Where through our, our mistakes, Jesus is amplified. Where, where through our shortcomings, Jesus becomes bigger and fuller. And then all the more, like as the story continues, once you get into Acts and the books, you see these guys under the power and action of the Holy Spirit become heroes of faith. And they actually begin to live in the humility and the peace and the joy and the love and the faith that the Holy Spirit breathes into their life. They do incredible things. I want to invite you to close your eyes now as we just reflect on what we've talked about for a minute. Jesus is before you and he's asking you these three questions. Why are you searching for me? Why are you searching for me? Can you answer that afresh every day? Then he asks you, where is your faith? It's not condemning. It's not coercive. It's not aggressive. It's a calm, gentle, firm invitation. Show me where your faith is. He gets impressed by faith. Jesus does. Like the centurion or the woman who reached out for him. And then finally he asks you, who do you say I am? Or perhaps... What does your life say about me? We get to respond to those three questions. And right now, I want to give you that chance. Regardless of your background, regardless of how much you know about Jesus or how much you've experienced of Him, I want to give you that chance to respond to those questions. In particular, if it's the first or it's been a long time, since you've asked yourself those questions. I want you to let me know by raising your hand and I want to pray for you in just a minute. Cool. And if, if, if these are questions that you love, that you can relate to and you, you want to spend time sitting in the tension of them every day, then I want you just to be praying at the moment. Not only for your own day, that it would be rich, that there would be intentional, purpose-filled answers to these questions, but that people would discover these questions for the first time and that they would be able to answer them honestly as well. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that it's in moments like this that we can say we found you. Equally so, Lord, it's in moments like this where we can be honest with ourselves about how we're living with you. So, Father, as we reflect this morning on why we're searching for you, 
where our faith is and who you are. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would bring a sincerity and a humility and a simplicity to our answers. That our lives would be filled with faith, filled with your Holy Spirit, and that everyone around us would want to know why. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Please connect with us at a differentlight.com.au or join us at one of our Sunday gatherings.